2: Well, welcome back, everybody. It's been a interesting week, to say the least. But uh, anyway, the, uh, this is a, uh, it's been very tough on people. Been getting a lot of phone calls. People calling in wondering if their money is safe, and so I thought I would refer to a few of the articles that I sent out on my company's newsletter. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to that, it's free. Uh, Just go to my website, it's BullingtonCapital.com, and sign up there on the uh, Contact Us page. Once you fill out the Contact Us page, you can just say you just wanted the uh, newsletter. It's a really good service. I I edit the text on the uh, newsletter before I send it out, and I try to keep the articles that are being suggested for me uh, relevant to whatever is happening in the, the market environment at that particular time. And this one's a doozy, <laughs> and so I thought I would start off by just uh, just reading from some of these because it's going to make you feel better. Uh, and the reality is, it, it seems a lot scarier than it is. So, I'll, I'll, with having said that, the first article is uh, called "Is My Money Safe?" Here's what is covered and how you can do more. And the article goes on to say. The customers of Silicon Valley Bank aren't going to lose any of their deposits. Neither will the businesses or individuals who have money at Signature Bank. That resolution, however, doesn't make the upheaval of the past several days any less scary. As stocks of banks like First Republic and even brokerage industry stalwarts like Charles Schwab shutter, it's natural to want to know what kind of backstop exists to keep you from losing money if your financial institution fails. The news here is mostly good, since entities like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation offer hundreds of thousands of dollars of guarantee. Here are some of the answers to the questions you may have about checking accounts and about um, money at investment firms. We'll also suggest a few steps you might take, even if the tumult tumult subsides, I could say that. Shoring up defenses and having a few backup plans is just good financial hygiene. So, how much deposit insurance exists for my bank account? You generally get $250,000 of insurance per depositor per bank. The insurance covers several categories of holdings, including checking and savings accounts, prepaid debit cards, and certificates of deposit. In the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank instances, regulators chose to make depositors entirely whole with no cap. By the way, when that first started happening, I was wondering if I was reading that correctly. And turns out, yeah, I was reading it correctly. They're going to make the depositors whole with no caps. That's pretty interesting. Anyway, though there is no guarantee that they would do it again the next time a bank failed. So I guess the uh, the guys that come up first are actually going to have the most protection, uh, but you never know. Anyway, if you have many different types of holdings and you add up the balances to see if they exceeded two hundred, exceed two hundred fifty thousand dollars, this this is normally how the SIPC, I'm sorry, the FDIC insurance works. If not, then say your fifty thousand CD and your twenty five thousand dollars savings account are both protected. Um, insurance costs nothing. You don't have to check a box when you open your account to get it. It's automatic as long as you're banking with an FDIC insured institution. The FDIC's website has a searchable database, which is nice. Anyway, what if I want more than $250,000 in coverage? If you set up a joint account with someone else, say a spouse, you each get $250,000 in coverage for a potential total of $500,000 on a single joint account. Another possibility is to open accounts at different institutions. You get the same FDIC coverage at each with no limit on the number of institutions where you can have accounts and insurance. Incidentally, some brokerage firms have networks of banks so that they will spread the money out uh, across various banks and you can get a lot, of, a lot more than $250,000 coverage because you're, you're depositing the money through that network with multiple banks. If you'd like to know more about that, just give me a phone call or... Go to my website, blinken Capital, and say, hey, can you tell me about that banking network that promises more than $250,000 in basic coverage? I'll be glad to share that information with you. Anyway, how does the FDIC insurance work if my bank goes out of business? If you have enough insurance to cover your balances, you, you usually have access to that money within days, often the next business day. Sometimes your money will end up at a new bank right away if that bank takes over your old one. So-called bridge banks are operating the former Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank for now. If you don't have enough insurance to cover your balances, you may still get some or most of the uncovered amount back. But it could take years for the FDIC to sort it out as it winds down a failed bank's operations and sells its assets. Another question, what would happen to the direct deposit of my paycheck or Social Security payment if my bank failed? According to the FDIC, if another financial institution acquires a failed bank right away, the deposits should land in your new account without incident. Bridge banks should have the same abilities. Another question. How would I get access to my safe deposit box if my bank failed? Access to safe deposit boxes should be possible the next business day after a bank failure. The FDIC says on its webpage with frequently asked questions about bank failures. Sorry if I confused you with my tone of voice there. I didn't read that ahead of time. So, in other words, if you have a safe deposit box, you should be able to get access to it within a day or two. That's good news. How much deposit insurance exists for my credit union? The National Credit Union Administration administers an insurance fund that is similar to the FDICs and has its own $250,000 limit. You can read more about it on the mycreditunion.gov website, that's mycreditunion.gov website, Um, are my brokerage and investment accounts protected? If a brokerage firm is in financial trouble, an entity called the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, known as SIPC, serves as a backstop. It's a nonprofit corporation that was created under the Securities Investor Protection Act of 1970. SIPC generally cover, covers up to five hundred thousand dollars of securities and cash, including a two hundred fifty thousand dollars limit for the cash component. So, if you had a money market, normal bank, a normal brokerage firm, then uh, you could have up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it, it would be insured. Uh, if you had two hundred fifty thousand dollars of other securities, whether you know bonds, stocks, mutual funds, that kind of stuff, there's another two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So uh, it can be higher for people with multiple accounts, by the way, depending on the account types and whether they're individual accounts or jointly held. That's kind of the same as the FDIC. Anyway, the the next paragraph goes on. A traditional individual retirement account, a Roth IRA, and an individual brokerage account, for example, would each qualify for a $500,000 limit at the same firm. The same goes for a separate joint account or a trust account. So you could have a ton of money invested at one brokerage firm, and it would all be um, covered under those circumstances. And then the article goes on to say, but if you had two individual brokerage accounts at the same firm, for instance, you'd only receive up to 500000 in protection for both. So if you got two individual accounts, both in your name, and the $500,000 max kicks in a married couple with a joint brokerage account as well as two individual brokerage accounts at the same firm would receive an additional 500,000 in coverage for the joint account. Let's get. Do all brokerage customer, customers receive protection? The SIPC says on its website that it's important to understand that its coverage is not the securities world equivalent of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Its focus is on restoring customer cash and securities left in the hands of bankrupt or otherwise financially troubled brokerage firms. Uh, The protection is available only if the brokerage firm fails and is a member of SIPC. Most brokerage firms are required to be members, by the way. You can check if your your brokerage firm is one of its 3,500 members on the SIPC's website or by contacting the firm. After a brokerage firm has failed, SIPC quickly seeks to transfer the accounts to a healthy firm so customers can get immediate access to their investment. If account transfers aren't possible or money is still missing, customers can file claims with the SIPC for what they're owed, uh, said Josephine Wang, president of SIPC. What types of investments are covered? In addition to cash, covered investments include stocks bonds, mutual funds, and other company shares and registered security. SIPD does not cover unregistered investment contracts, unregistered limited partnerships, fixed annuity contracts, those are typically done by the state, currency, and interest in gold, silver, or other commodity futures contracts or commodity options, according to SIPC. Why were investors worried about Schwab? Shares of Charles Schwab, the giant retail brokerage, plunged on fears that it, too, could be swept up in the crisis. The stock fell as much as 23% on Monday before closing down more than 11%. Investors may have been worried about its large banking business, which, like Silicon Valley Bank, holds a considerable amount of fixed income investments that have dropped in value because of rising interest rates. Now, this is something that we've been talking about on this show now uh, ever since interest rates got down under 2%. I was a little bit early, I'd rather be a little bit early than a little bit late. Uh, the interest rates actually got as low as 1% or even lower, slightly lower. And when interest rates are that low, unless they're going to start charging you to hold your money, you've got to figure at some point in time, interest rates are going to rise. When interest, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall. If the bond prices fall and you're a bank that invested in them when interest rates were really low, you bought 30-year bonds because they were paying slightly higher interest. Well, that was a mistake. You probably, should, hopefully, this typically what happens is normally about a generation or so, like ten, well, less than a generation. But every 10 to 12 years, something like this happens because people that are in charge forget, <laughs> or they don't forget. The people that, that uh, suffer these things have gone on and probably are closer to retirement. They retired, and then you get got younger people coming in who don't have the, this type of experience. And have never really studied it very heavily because I, I can't imagine somebody studying the history of interest rates and bond price movement doing what they did here. Uh, it's just somebody who wasn't over it. Yeah, you can get overly optimistic. Uh, and you know, greed can hop in. Everybody else is getting less than 1%. You see a 30-year bond paying 3% and figure, oh, it's just going to stay that way until I can get out of it. Um, bad assumption, um, and this is what happens when those assumptions turn out to be wrong. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to go back to uh, this article. Uh, it was talking about Charles Schwab. See, it closed down 11%. Investors may have been worried about its large banking business, which, like Silicon Valley Bank, holds a considerable amount of fixed-income investments that have dropped in value because of rising interest rates. But Schwab has healthy reserves, and analysts aren't worried about its financial position. And as as the firm's top executives recently pointed out, more than 80% of its clients' cash is insured dollar for dollar by the FDIC. There's a question. Should I have backup credit cards? There's no indication that any major credit card issuer is in trouble. But it's always wise to have two cards with different companies if you can qualify for that much credit. You might lose your primary card, for instance, or the card company could shut uh, the card down if it's worried about fraud, say, when you're traveling. So that's interesting. I've never seen that happen. By the way, it never really even occurred to me that... uh, Somebody may, well, is on a trip, uh, I, I had a, actually had a client that lost their credit card uh, that was issued by Fidelity and they were in Europe and we got another one issued and overnighted it to them. I think it took a total of 48 hours for them to get their card, but um, that was interesting. <laughs> anyway, could I lose access to ATM withdrawal? If a bank fails, there could be a, there could be technical snafus. That's the word they actually used. If a new institution inherits insured accounts, that might render an ATM card inoperable for a few days. Another possibility is a widespread power outage that lasts for days. By the way, we've been getting rolling outages on our internet access for a few years now. Well, yeah, since COVID. And uh, that is horribly frustrating. Anyway, it just makes it harder, it's not impossible. You just spend a lot of time waiting around. And uh and they're talking about this, uh in the form of a power outage. If it lasts for days, it makes it hard to get cash and uh, or to use cash for debit cards in stores. During the run up to severe weather, bank customers may empty ATM and in the aftermath it may be hard for the money money trucks to get the ATM to the ATMs to refill them. Given these possibilities, it's a good idea to tuck a few hundred dollars away if you can afford to set that money aside. Just remember where you put it. It's easy to forget, and then years later, give away the clothes or books with the money still hidden inside. There are a ton of funny stories about people doing that. Some of them, not so funny. Some people kid extremely large dollar amounts in their houses, in the walls. And My dad was... The, uh, remodeling contractor, and occasionally we would find something like that. It was pretty interesting, but I've got about uh, 10 seconds here before break, so I'm just going to tell you again, this is Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon. Uh, if you'd like to call into today's program and ask a question, 216-901-0945 is the number there, 216-901-0945. To come back, I've got a couple more articles It should make you feel much better about what's been going on over the past week or so, and I'll be back right after these messages. I work so hard, trying to open open every door. And far, turning over every stone.
0: Bad decisions limit future options. Make bad enough decisions and you'll destroy your life. Listen to the flot line with your host Rick Hughes every Sunday morning at six thirty here on AM 1420 The Answer. The flat Line describes a mainline resistance in your soul to build on God's word. Join us every Sunday for 30 minutes of inspiration, motivation, education, all without manipulation. That's The Flatline with Rick Hughes, heard every Sunday at 6.30 a.m. on AM 1420, The Answer.
1: Dennis Prager is tired of the fear-mongering. Al Gore and these other crackpots have been saving the world since 1990 at least. Every 12 years we're warned it's too late if we don't do anything. And we uh, do almost nothing except ruin people's lives. The damage that the the latest panic-mongers are doing... It's daily in the news. The Dennis Frager Show. Weekdays at one, right before Sebastian Gorka at three on AM fourteen twenty. The answer.
0: And Odyssey. Our suppliers pay us so you don't have to. Call 330-573-8147 for more details. Or you can visit our website at vacationfixation.com. Or check out the deal of the day on
3: Facebook, Vacation Fixation.
2: Welcome back. This is Bill Bullington. I'm the owner and operator of Bullington Capital Management. Yeah, if you hear anything on this show that you'd like more information on, or if you'd like a copy of one of these articles that I'm using today, uh, which I really appreciate a lot from the service that I'm allowed to select these from, uh, Yeah, they are. Uh, this is a newsletter that you can sign up for. It's free. You can just go to my website. It's BullingtonCapital.com. And uh, I don't produce the articles. They're coming from Forbes and Fortune and Barron. Um, I just edit the newsletter that goes out and uh, approve or disapprove of the articles, whatever the case may be, uh, before we send them out. And uh, I really like this week's selection. And I'm amazed at how quickly so many... Um, People just responded and, and put out some really good material. This article came from Forbes and it's called Lessons from Buffett and Lynch on Investing in Big Crisis. Uh, Opportunities for the Patient Investor. Now, for those young people who don't know who Lynch was, Peter Lynch was uh, has the track record for the um, best publicly held mutual fund, you know, a fund that was held a fund that was open to the general public. And uh, but you can look him up, just Google him. Uh spelled L-Y-N-C-H. Buffett's one of the richest men in the in the world. And he got there by running a fund and investing throughout his entire lifetime. So, pretty really decent information and advice from these guys. Anyway, the, the article goes on to say, From the collapse of the railroads in the 1800s to the Great Depression in the 1930s, the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s and early 90s, the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, speculation over investment, leverage, and too much of what appears to be a good thing oftentimes ends badly for investors and those financial institutions that are playing a part of that game. Silicon Valley Bank is now the latest casualty of a long but sometimes forgotten pattern. Uh, there are risks to being overly exposed to an area of the economy that is high in speculation and overvaluation. As Warren Buffett once said, you find out who is swimming naked when the tide goes out. That's kind of a frightening thought, a 90-year-old man. I'm just kidding. Anyway, Buffett uh, Buffett always once said, opportunities come infrequently. When it rains gold, put out the bucket, not the thimble. And uh, that's easier said than done. I understand. But I think he's right. Anyway, I'm sure he is. Silicon Valley Bank backdrop story. For Silicon Valley Bank and some of the tech startups that did business with them, the ebb currently started with rising inflation in late 2021, which led to significantly higher interest rates. This led to a bear market in stocks, particularly growth stocks in 2022, which spilled over into the private market valuation. Venture-backed companies found it harder and more challenging to raise funds So many started drawing off their cash balances to cover costs. To make matters worse, Silicon Valley Bank invested in longer-duration government bonds, and as interest rates rose, those bonds fell in value. In need of capital, the company had plans to try and raise capital, but the FDIC wasn't going to wait around. On March 8th, Silicon Valley Bank was solvent. On March 9th, customers tried to withdraw $42 billion, And on March 10th, the FDIC had taken control of the bank. It was a classic run on the bank. Run on the bank just means a whole bunch of depositors decided to take their money out very quickly. And that can be very problematic for banks because they have to keep a certain amount of money in reserves. And when, uh, when people are taking money out too quickly, they can't raise the money to do those reserves especially if they got long-term bonds without causing losses because if you've got long-term bonds and interest rates have gone up, those bonds are not worth what you paid for them. If you're allowed to hold them until maturity, then there would be no problem there. But uh, that's what happens. The bond prices fall in the short run and then people take money out, forcing the bank to realize those losses. Anyway, next uh, column is headlined by a title that says Risk and Opportunity. Investors could look at this event with Silicon Valley Bank in two ways. The first concerns the contagion effects that may impact the market, other banks, and other companies. Roku, the streaming service, had close to five hundred million in deposits at the bank. The company had a total of one point nine billion in cash, so twenty five percent of the firm's cash may not be recoverable. Companies like Roku will get receivership certificates for its uninsured balances and will have to wait to see if they will get some or all of its money back. There will undoubtedly be more stories like this, and the ultimate fallout is still unknown. But with these historical events, often comes an opportunity for the long-term patient investor, which is the second way to look at the situation. opportunistic investors looking at the banking sector may want to start getting their busy buy lists ready as values emerge. Since the end of 2021, the financial select sector SPDR ETF XLF is down close to 16%, while the SPDR S&P Regional Banking ETF, symbol KRE, is down more than 25%. But underneath the hood, many financials are down much more. The great mutual fund manager Peter Lynch once said, Investing without research is like playing stud poker and never looking at the card. My research relies on the stock picking methods of great investors like Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, and many others. I've extracted the investment criteria outlined by Buffett, Lynch, and others into computerized investment models and ranked stocks to the system that is made up of 22 distinct stock selection models, ranging from value, quality growth at a reasonable price, pure growth, and momentum. So, by the way, this is the uh, author of this article. This is explaining how he manages his money because of the comprehensive, and diverse set of models. And incidentally, this is exactly the um, revolution that's been going on since the early 2000s in the ETF space. There are a lot of ETFs that do the exact same thing. It's one of the reasons that I'm so fond of using them, is that. If you can think of something that that's slightly logical, there's probably a fund out there doing it. There are a lot of funds out there that, doing, that are doing things that are kind of illogical as well. You have to be careful. And there are a ton of those out there. So when I'm trying to help my client and pick ETFs for their accounts and the same way I'm picking those for mine, I'm looking at those, we call them factors. What kind of factors in the long run have have a tendency to matter the most. And quite frankly, the the two that are the most, have the biggest impact, in my opinion, uh, are the profitability and then there's size. How big is the company? Is the company, oh, and also the uh, speed uh, at which the company is growing. That's going to, those are, uh, actually, two of those factors are closely related to one another, but Anyway, that when you look at, in the long run, what is going to probably make the most money in the past, it's been those companies who've had the highest profit margin, uh, who've had the fastest growth in sales. That should make sense. It should make sense to most people. Now, the valuation portion of it, that, that's where capitalization comes in. I probably won't have time to talk about that today. Uh, I will put that in a future show. Maybe next week we'll talk about it. But uh, for right now, and this is all you really need to do, if, if you, uh, when I'm looking for investments that I want to make, I want to make sure that the fund is looking at the profitability of a company and is ranking that. Why? Well, because, first of all, it makes common sense. The more profitable they are, the better they should do. Uh, and when you do the back testing over long time periods, not not over short time periods, you really need to be looking at over ten years or longer. If you're looking at anything less than ten years, you're probably making a mistake. So, uh, because over a four or five year period, there are funds that will come out and they will do incredibly well, uh, and until they don't, and then you find out that there's not a whole lot of uh, cash being generated by a lot of these companies. Some of them, they're just burning through cash. Their share prices have gone up in uh, significantly, but eventually, without the underlying fuel of profits, profitability, and sales, those companies are going to crash. So, I, I don't want those in my client's accounts, and I don't want them in my accounts, and I don't care what they do in the short run. They could go up four, five, six hundred percent. At some point in time, unless they've got sales and profits to justify that, it's going to crash, and they don't tell you when they're coming down. <laughs> Just like they don't tell you when you know the banking sector is going to develop a couple problems. Uh, anyway, let me finish this uh, article because there are a couple more that I, I think are uh, pretty nice. But again, if you want to sign up for my newsletter uh, where you where you get these articles sent to your email, there's no cost. Just go to com. And I'd be glad to add you there. Anyway, uh, Peter Lynch, I'll, I'll just go back over that last paragraph. Investing without research is like playing stud poker and never looking at the cards. My research relies on the stock picking methods of great investors like Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, and many others. So that, this is the opinion of the guy that's writing the article now. Have extracted the investment criteria outlined by Buffett, Lynch, and others into computerized investment models and ranked stocks. to the system's made of 22 distinct stock selection models, ranging from value, quality, growth at a reasonable price, pure growth, and momentum. Those are all various styles of money management. Most of them are they're kind of similar a little bit. Uh, they got some differences. It goes on to say because of the comprehensive and diverse set of models, I can analyze stocks through various investment processes to see how wide range uh, of how companies rate fundamentally. For example, I've screened the top 10 money center banks in the U.S. that get the highest rating at the current time. While the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank may have contagion effects that impact other markets, banks, and companies, there's also potential for the disciplined long-term investor to find opportunities in the banking sector. As Lynch once said, know what you own and know why you own it. By conducting thorough research, avoiding excessive risk-taking and maintaining discipline discipline and focus during periods of market turmoil, investors can take advantage of the opportunities created by the crisis. You know what I'd like to add to that? It's important that you and your advisor know these things. Like somebody's coming in, i uh, uh, me show my portfolio because I use the same, I use a variation on that for most of my clients. They have the ability to say, yeah, I'm, I really don't like that. Most of them don't. Most of them will, uh, uh, Go along with whatever we put together because we put a lot of time, effort, and energy into it. It's it common sense with some knowledge of financial statements and over 30 years of experience. Um, and I can tell you that a lot of people are really afraid it, because even when you do that, even when you go to all these measures and you look at the funds and you look at the underlying stocks that they're investing in, you're looking at the breakdown stocks, bonds, cash, the whole investment um, policy that you have at your firm, it's generally fairly significant, and it can take a uh, you know, long time to get your arms around, especially the performance aspect of it. Not everything performs at the same time, and, and that is a really difficult concept for people, and so they get caught up when the S&P does very well, uh, it's probably going to beat most other indexes. And if you're in those other indexes, there's a tendency to want to switch into the SP or a fund that's similar to that. And typically it's after two or three years and you just figure, oh, I am so tired. It happens long enough to convince you that it's going to stay that way forever, right until you invest in it <laughs> or I invest in it. And uh, believe me, I've had to live through that so many times. And uh, uh, eventually, you get to the point where you're going, okay, and by the way, it's not just living through it. Personally, you'll never have enough experience with one person, your own life experience to learn enough. By the time you learned anything, you'll you'll be in your 80s. uh, So you have to study what other people have done. That's why I like to hear from Peter Lynch, uh, Warren Buffett. They studied from people who had done it before them, and they're sharing that information. Today, it's a little bit easier, I think, for an awful lot of people. You want to put together a um, good investment portfolio. I think it's not as hard as it used to be. You'll you'll probably never be completely at ease when something like this happens. It has a tendency to affect all stocks, not just some of them. Some of the stocks get affected a little more than the others. Uh, In the long run, though, you've got a, a good breakdown. Stocks, bonds, and cash. You should be doing pretty well. You've got a diversified portfolio, and if you're not sure, you can always call us. We can take a look at what you're doing, uh, and uh, I would give you, I'll give you—I'll show you my models. You can kind of compare them. There's no pressure there. Like uh, I have a hard time calling back the people that want to talk to me, so—but uh, I will call you back. And uh, uh, actually, this past week, I've been spending an awful lot of time on the phone, <laughs> but. Uh, Anyway, this is the uh, this is something that is also important. When you're trying to figure out how to, to create that portfolio, you got to ask yourself, well, how long do you think you'll live? And I know that's a really tough thing to do. Uh, and this next article is kind of geared towards that, figuring out your life expectancy is tough. They're acknowledging that. And the last part of it, or the next part of the headline is how not to run out of money, which is Pretty important. So, uh, to the article. is consider a husband and wife, both 63 years old, who plan to retire at age 65. They've saved up enough money for a 25-year retirement. According to the Social Security Administration's actuarial life table, the man can expect to live another 18 years after retiring, while the woman can expect to live almost 21 years. It sounds as it, it sounds as if they've saved up plenty. What are the odds one of them will outlive their 25 years of dating? The odds are more than 60 percent, according to this calculator from the American Academy of Actuaries and the Society of Actuaries. The calculator uses the same Social Security data with a few basic health questions mixed in. Looking at averages isn't a foolproof way of determining how long you can expect to live. People die at a variety of ages over a period of decades, according to actuaries. Cal- Calculator: A 65-year-old man in excellent health who doesn't smoke has a 95% chance, chance of living to age 70 and a 79% chance of living to 80, a 43% chance to 90, and 8% chance to, to 100. I'm going to take a real quick commercial break here. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk, continue to talk about what you can do to make your money last as long as you do, and which is a big part of the question most people have. This is Bill Bullington. I'll be right back after these
3: messages.
0: It can be dangerously easy to steal your identity during tax season because so much sensitive info was altogether. Before we start the annual meeting of Sean's personal info, uh, has anyone seen social security number? Not me. Nope. Nuh uh. Oh, no. He's been stolen. Lifelock by Norton makes it easy to help protect yourself. If you become a victim, we'll work to fix it. No one can monitor all transactions, but you can save up to 25% off your first year with promo code NEWS at lifelock.com. Identity theft protection starts here.
3: You've heard the saying, all good things come to an end. Well, not always. Sometimes they just take a break. That's what's happening with our Lady of the Wayside's car donation program after 24 years and 96,000 rides donated. Pretty amazing. Here's the story. The car lot's owners sold the property, making it impossible for car donations to be accepted at this time. According to the Wayside CEO Terry Davis, the next right steps will be determined and communicated soon, so stay tuned. In the meantime, Terry and the entire team at The Wayside thank you for your continued support of the 450 individuals with developmental disabilities in The Wayside's care. And please take note, you can still support them by making a donation at thewayside.org.
2: Welcome back. This is Bill Bullington. I'm here every Saturday morning from 11 to noon. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can go to my website, BullingtonCapital.com, or you can call us, 330-664-0700. That number again is 330-664-0700. And we were talking about uh, actually a few things today. Collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and how that's probably going to uh, not have too negative effect on as many people as you might think, uh, how to invest the money. And incidentally, when people invest with us, we use um, banking products from a brokerage firm. So there's an extra layer of protection there, by the way. And if you'd like to talk more about that, you know, feel free to go to my website and reach out to us or call us six six four zero seven hundred. I'll try to get back to you as quickly as I possibly can. And you can do a lot more than the five hundred thousand dollars that you get from basic SIPC uh, coverage or the uh, FDIC coverage. So, at any rate, uh, here's the. Uh, this is an article I, I thought was interesting. This is the one that uh, I get a lot of questions on. How much money can I spend without running out of money in retirement? So there was a great article on this, and it's uh, figuring out how figuring out your life expectancy is tough. How not to run out of money, and this appeared in Barrons on the 13th of March. And uh, uh, I'm just going to read right from the article because I think they do a better job than I can. <laughs> anyway, if you're using life expectancy calculations to plan your retirement budget, you could run out of money. That's the that's how it starts off. Consider a husband and wife, both 63 years old, who plan to retire at age 65. They've saved up enough money for a 25-year retirement. According to the Social Security Administration's actuarial life table, the man can expect to live another 18 years after retiring, while the woman can expect to live almost 21 years. It sounds as if they have saved up plenty. And what are the odds that one of them will outlive their 25 years of savings? More than 60% according to this calculator from the American Academy of Actuaries and the Society of Actuaries. The calculator uses the same Social Security data with a few basic health questions mixed in. You know, if you go to the Social Security's website, set up an account there, you can get estimates of life expectancy. You can see what your benefits are projected to be. Uh, they're in today's dollars, by the way, and they will... Um, Forecast in the future if you change the estimator, but, uh, just, just so you know, that's little Anyway, looking at averages isn't a foolproof way of determining how long you can expect to live. People die at a variety of ages over a period of decades. According to the actuary's calculator, a 65 year old man in excellent health who doesn't smoke has a 95% chance of living to age 70. That means 19 out of 20 of the 65 year olds who are pretty good healthy don't smoke are going to be here at age 70. Wait. Anyway, uh, they have a 79% chance of living to 80 and a 43% chance of living to 90 and an 8% chance to 100. It's a challenge, says Richard Fah, a Philadelphia-based financial advisor and actuary. We never set a financial plan to be based on life expectancy. Uh, I try not to do that as well. And uh, I'll come back to that in a a little bit. But uh, the article goes on. For married couples, the math gets even more daunting. If that 65-year-old man is married to a 65-year-old non-smoking woman in identical health, there's a 10% chance one of them will be alive at age 103. These retirement periods are a lot longer than people plan for, says Linda K. Stone, the senior pension fellow at the American Academy Academy of Actuaries. Further complicating things, it's common for one spouse to live another 10 or 15 years After the first spouse has died, she notes. The variability in lifespans presents a big financial planning challenge. Spend too much and you run out of money long before you die. Spend too little and you unnecessarily crimp your golden years. But there are steps you can take to make sure you have enough money no matter how long you live. They include using an actuarial calculator to obtain a more realistic appraisal of your likely lifespan and then creating a base of regular income for Social Security, pensions, annuities, and other secure sources to cover a, a, essential expenses. Uh, if you've taken those two key steps, you have a lot more flexibility in what to do with the rest of your money. That, that's a really good idea. This is one of the things that, that we try to do at Bullying to Capital, is take a look at what you think you might need during retirement. Um, the past several years, the products, in my opinion, have improved significantly uh, on annuities for retirees. I think a lot of that's because insurance companies realize that you know that every day 10,000 people turn 60 in the United States and that there was going to be a lot of demand for it, and they're answering that, and it's competitive, which is a good thing. Uh, the more competitive it is, the better the rates are for us, and uh, that may be something you want to take a look at, how much income can you generate from an annuity uh, as a part of your overall plan. Anyway. There's a guidebook to how to properly plan for longevity. Take your calculations a step further. Start with this longevity calculator from the actuaries. It demands five pieces of information, your date of birth, your gender, your retirement age, whether you smoke, and whether you assess your general health as poor, average, or excellent. I just have to stop for a second. These are estimates. They're trying to help you with estimates. Uh, sometimes when I say or, or I read something like this to someone, they take it as, okay, this is a guarantee. Nope, not a guarantee. It's just an estimate. And uh, so they go on to say, we, we try to keep this simple with the factors that make the most difference. So here's what makes the most difference to your longevity. Uh, how old are you? Obviously. Uh, whether you're male or female, females have a tendency to live, live a little bit longer. Retirement age. Uh, I'm assuming that the earlier you retire, the longer your life expectancy, but I could be wrong. Uh, whether you smoke, that's, that's the big one, and whether you assess your general health as poor, average, or excellent. Okay. Those are the key factors that the actuaries said make the most difference. Because they go on to say smoking, of course, has a big effect on your lifespan, a seven-year-old smoker, and an average, in average health has a 50% chance of living 12 more years. If she doesn't smoke, her life expectancy rises to 18 years. They were talking about a female there. General health is another key. Consider the 70-year-old female non-smoker. If she assesses her health as poor, she has a 50% chance of living 16 more years. If she assesses it as excellent, it rises to 20 years. How, How good are we at knowing our own health? People have a better sense of their health than of their longevity. Than their longevity, yeah, uh, says David Blanchett, head of retirement research for the PGIM unit of Prudential Financial. Instead of a single life expectancy number, the calculator gives you probabilities at various ages. If you aren't overly worried about outliving your money, use the age at which the calculator says you have a 25% chance of being alive, says financial alpha, uh, author Wade Fowle, who wrote. Uh, retirement planning guidebook be even more cautious pick the age at which you have a 10% chance of being alive yeah. by the way the uh, Wade saw oh, he I see him around quite a bit I think he's associated either with the American College uh, or the uh, uh, one of the other financial planning schools he's, he's a professor there Anyway. Make a plan to cover ex- essential expenses. The first step is to wait as long as possible to claim Social Security, the only current major annuity that is adjusted for inflation. Your monthly benefit will rise by at least seventy percent I'm sorry, seventy-six percent if you claim it seventy instead of sixty two. That's a big deal. Seventy percent increase by by putting it off. If Social Security and other pensions you receive are enough to cover essential expenses such as housing, food and health spending, um, then you're all set. If not, there are other steps you can take to boost your safe income. One option is buying a lifetime income annuity. Currently, annuities for a 70-year-old man have annual payoffs of up to 8.42% from a top-rated insurer, according to annuities.com, a website that sells annuities for various insurers. I can tell you that the firms that we deal with, that that number's pretty accurate. Uh, That is for life only, uh, which is you may not want to do that. But that's something you can talk to us about, try to figure out which one is going to best fit your personal circumstances. Fees are fairly minimal on these basic annuities, though commissions and surrender fees can be sizable on other more complex annuities. So be careful to understand what you're buying. Uh, another option is creating a ladder of treasure, Treasury inflation protected securities or tips to cover your retirement. I'm not a huge fan of this. I mean, I think it makes. A, a lot of idea, uh, a very good idea in theory. Uh, the problem is the premiums that these things were selling for, a premium is, is a price that you pay above the price that it's going to mature at, uh, and you don't get that back. If you, hold, if you pay $1, or $1,100 for a bond that's going to mature at $1,000 on its maturity date, that $100 is considered a premium, and you don't get that back. So, it would be great if you could buy a ton of the um, securities directly through the Fed, but they've got limitations on some of this, and that that makes it incredibly difficult. So, the thing to do, though, is just call your financial advisor. If you don't have one, golingtoncapital.com. You can reach out there. I'll try to help you as much as I can. And uh, uh, we've been buying a ton of – there's a short-term bond fund that's just I really like it a lot. It, it invests in short-term bonds. If you don't have the expertise, or you don't want to take the kind of time it takes to do this kind of stuff, because there's, there's a commitment involved, and the commitment's fairly large. I mean, uh, see, the the best-paying bonds right now are relatively short-term in nature. What that means is, you buy a bond, and two years later, you're probably going to have to be buying other bonds, and you don't know what the bonds are going to be at that point in time. Uh, you don't want to project that out over the next 10 15 20 years because you're only buying bonds. these bonds have a two to three year life expectancy once that our maturity date once that maturity date is reached who knows what the interest rates are going to be at that point in time they could be higher they could be lower you don't know and uh, anyway so it, there's a lot to be said for using funds that are doing this i like to use fidelity cuz they're one of the largest fixed-income asset managers in the world, and when you understand what they're actually doing, uh, it, I'd much just rather have them doing it than me doing it. Anyway, um, the last portion of, of this article says be flexible with your spending. In other words, you know, watch what you're spending and try to make adjustments along the way. i got about four seconds left on this show. This is Bill Bullington. I hope you guys have helped this week. Everybody have a good week. Good investing. Good luck.